Get ready to experience the pulse of the outdoor community as we dive into the stories of people's journeys into the outdoor world. Hello, welcome back to the Outdoor Pulse. And before we get started today, I was just going to let everyone know uh, some of the big changes this week. I'm starting to post more content on TikTok and Instagram, and I'm going to be doing more mini-series on things like trails and things like that. Other than that, uh, today is an awesome episode, so sit back, relax, and take a listen, and we'll jump right in. Thank you very much. And we are recording, so... Welcome to the Outdoor Pulse. I'm your host, Mitch Dean. Today we have on Benjamin Alexander. He is a hopeful for the Olympics and he wants to ski for the Jamaican team. So he is hoping to get the rest of his points this upcoming year and qualify. So we're going to dive into his story and what led to him getting into the outdoor community. So how's it going? Great. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Happy to have you and excited to hear your story and what's led to you trying to make the Olympics. So I'm super excited to hear your story. So we'll just kind of dive right into it and kind of start off with what the initial draw for the outdoor community was for you and what your initial steps into that community looked like. So I think I have a pretty unique starting point. So the aha moment when I realized this is something I really want to do, and that is being in the outdoor community, not, not the Olympic Park, because that came a lot later. Um, in 2015, I was invited to join some friends uh, for a heli-skiing trip in British Columbia, Canada, uh, at a place called Micah. And at this time, I had no outdoor experience at all. In fact, I'd spent the last 10 years of my life pretty much on a beach or near a beach in either Hong Kong, Thailand, and uh, Indonesia, Bali. So the concept of me going to a ski trip was just like, you know, completely alien to me. The reason I was talked into going is because a big group of us, about 30 of us, uh, were going to completely take over the lodge. We were going to fly in DJ equipment and this big sound system and subwoofers and all of that stuff. And at the time, I was a professional DJ, full-time DJ. And I was told that the Micah Heli Lodge was kind of like five-star accommodation. It's not, you know, your fisherman shack in the summer that turns into a heli ski operation in the winter. And so I was convinced I was sold on the idea of spending Christmas with 30 of my closest friends, part of my Burning Man camp, my Burning Man community, uh, doing it in the great outdoors and just making sure that the beer was cold and making sure that the jacuzzi was hot along the way. Now, on one of the days, um, they, the, the group of guys who were actually doing the heli skiing and organizing the trip had invited me and the rest of the house cats, that are the people, the, the, the people that weren't skiing, out to join them for lunch. So we jumped into a helicopter met them at the top of one of these peaks and, you know, had your typical heli-ski lunch of bone broth and, uh, and sandwiches and whatnot. Yeah. But then at the end of the lunch, everyone just popped on their skis and just disappeared off. And I was just blown away by this concept of jumping out of a helicopter with your skis and just skiing in this super remote territory in this incredible terrain. I come from the countryside in England, so have, have very little experience, if, if zero experience of, of being in the mountains at that time. And it was that moment there and then that I said, I want to be a part of this. I'm not coming back on this trip, which my friends have been doing annually, but I'm not coming back unless I'm part of the skiing contingent. Um, two months later, I was uh, DJing down in South America and I was flown from Rio and Brazil up to Whistler to DJ at a swingers party and managed to get out on the mountain and have my first ever outdoor skiing lesson and just 
I've been hooked since then. So I, I think it was just the, 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 the majestic, the beauty of being out in this, these incredible mountains and just being in these kind of snow conditions that I'd never experienced before in England that just made me really want to be a part of this community. And I haven't looked back since. Yeah, no, the mountains are definitely the first time getting out to like striking mountain. Like I grew up in the Midwest. I made it down to the Appalachian Mountains a lot. And but the the Rockies are just a whole nother. And then especially with going up to heli skiing the mountains up in BC. BC is also just the mountains are just a whole nother level of striking and just just a different feel. And it's my first time getting out into the mountains out here was my freshman year. So I definitely, I had that feeling of, I need to be closer to that. And thus my move out here, I moved out here back in May. So I had the same, like, I need to be closer and more of a part of that. So I definitely feel that. And, you know, it's, they, they make you feel a certain way. And unless you've actually experienced it, you don't know what that feeling is that they kind of give you. So, and so from there, you said that you kind of got hooked. So um, after that, what were kind of like the steps leading into getting more into skiing? Because that was back in, you said 2016, right? Yeah, so 2016, I I, I skied two days in Whistler. Um, Back then I was was running a festival, uh, Mm -hmm. Festival for the Future that was in Las Vegas. And so didn't get an opportunity to ski again for another year. Um, went up to Mammoth in Jan- end of January 2017 when they'd had four feet of, 14 feet of snow come down in three days and just completely shut down the town. <laughs> so I caught the tail end of that, which was, which was amazing. But realistically, going into this and taking ski lessons, my, my overarching goal, the main thing I wanted to achieve was to be able to heavy ski with my buddies. So yeah. Christmas 2017, on my ninth day of skiing ever, I was heli skiing back at the Michael Lodge with my friends. I'm not sure how many people have skied on the heli skied on the ninth day of skiing. It was probably one of the yeah. most challenging things I've ever, ever done. But things really kicked up a notch in the following year, 2018. So a friend of mine organized, organizes an event called Send It. It's about 200 people. Most of them are tech entrepreneurs or, or entrepreneurs from um, you know, other, other fields. Um, everyone with a passion for the outdoors and skiing. And it takes place at Revelstoke. So it's a five-day event. There's talks in the evening and just great skiing and, and drinks and whatnot in the daytime. So I spent five days skiing with everyone. And that's when I really understood like the community aspect of being in the outdoors. You know, imagine taking over a mountain with, with 200 buddies, um, everyone either in costume or, or wearing some kind of armband so you know who's who. And it was yeah. just like, an, it was an epic time. Um, so that was, you know, early 2018. The following month, I went to the Olympics as a spectator in South Korea and noticed strangely that there were only three athletes representing my father's nation of Jamaica. And so a light bulb yeah. kind of went off. I mean, at this point, I'd only skied 14 days, 13 days. So the concept of getting to the Olympics was just completely, a, you know, a pipe dream at the end of a pipe dream and, and nothing serious. But later that year, I then skied in the Seco and in Chile and in Argentina. And I was, I was really, really hooked. What we then decided to do is at the start of 2019, which was only last year, of course, um, we decided to spend a month in Revelstoke around this event to send it. And I went into this month thinking, okay, if I can survive a month of skiing, because I love to ski fast, I don't really have, didn't really have much technique, so it's kind of kamikaze yeah. skiing back then. <laughs> if I could survive a month of skiing, then I would start to look into the prospects of actually getting to the Olympics. 
Now, on the fifth day of that month, I was super fortunate to have the opportunity to ski with a former U.S. national skier, Gordon, uh, Gordon Gray. And I told him about this, this crazy idea. So he's like, okay, let, let's ski together. At the end of the day, Gordon's like, okay, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. Here, here's my analysis, my assessment. He says, your technique, absolutely terrible. But, you know, you've told me you've only had two lessons. This is day, what, day 20, day 25 that you've ever skied? Understandable. He said, what I absolutely don't understand is how the hell you're keeping up with me. He's like, I've been skiing since I was two years old. I used to ski and represent my country. And somehow you're managed to, managing to keep up with me. I just don't get it. You're completely fearless. And he said, technique, we can teach you. Fearlessness, we can't teach you. If you're scared, you're always going to be afraid. And then you, you just don't have a hope in hell. And he was the guy that really helped me understand the fist system, uh, the point system, the different disciplines, uh, the discipline that I should try to chase after. And really kind of like steered me in the right way. Uh, that yeah. month in Revelstoke ended up being six weeks because as with everyone else, when you're on a ski trip, you never want it to end. And the conditions yeah. <laughs> were great. And in those six weeks, I managed to ski 1.7 million vertical feet over 1,200 miles. Um, and I left holding the record for the most amount of vertical feet skied in one day, 103,351 vertical feet. So I just kind of like became maniacal about getting out there and making turns. Yeah really getting into the sport. And if you think about it, a lot of people will go on a leisure holiday um, and you know, might rack up 20,000 feet in a day, right? Yeah. You long lift lines, plus you have the kids that want to have hot chocolate or whatever happens, <laughs> some equipment breaks. So from my reckoning, if you're doing 20,000 on an average day on an average kind of leisure ski trip and maybe getting five of those days in, it's almost as if I, I, I managed to squeeze in 10 years plus in, the, in that six weeks of just intense lapping yeah. in Revelstoke. And I've just been, you know, maniacally trying to catch up with all the skiers that have skied since a young age. I mean, yeah. as I said, my first time skiing um, was in 2016 at the age of 32. So a, a lot of catching up to do. Um, but yeah. And then who was that that uh, you were skiing with that was – did you ski with him the whole time during the six weeks? And what was his name again? No, Gordon Gray. Unfortunately Gordon Gray. not. He, he was there for the, uh, for the send it part of the trip. So he was only there for four days out of my 37 days of skiing. But most importantly, when we came back, he helped me kind of really understand the paperwork and the admin side of being able to qualify and just really gave me the hope and belief that what I had set out ahead of me is something that is possible. Um, yeah. The concept of starting a sport in your early 30s and then trying to get to the Olympics within you know, six years just seems completely out of whack. But he helped me understand that in the true spirit of the Olympics, they really want as many nationalities to be represented as possible. And so for countries such as Jamaica that don't have a ski offering or really much of a, of a winter offering, every nation is able to put forward one B-standard athlete, uh, which is what I'm aiming for which means that I would be, you know, of a professional level, but I'm not up there with the, you know, the, the Hirschmans or, 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 or kind of like the Ted Ligotys or yeah. those, the, that caliber of athlete. Yeah. Gotcha. So were you skiing with anybody in particular during those six weeks or was it a lot of just different people I, um, every single day? I, I managed to, I mean, you know how the, the kind of like the, the sport of skiing is you, yeah. you kind of like strike up a conversation with someone on a chairlift and that person yeah. <laughs> ends up being your buddy for the rest of the time you're there. And actually, the guy that I met on a chairlift, a buddy of mine called Clayton, used to be a ski patrol at Kicking Horse and loves to ski fast as well um, and ended up being my ski partner for the majority of the, 
of the trip. And actually, when I extended my trip, is because Clayton offered me a spare room in his house. He's like, but you, you should definitely stay longer if you can stay at my house. And so that's why my four weeks turned into six because of Clayton. That's awesome. Yeah. No, those people that you find while doing your sport are definitely awesome. I'm part of the climbing community too. And it's similar to the skiing where you go out and you just, you meet people in the outdoor communities, at least from my experience so far in all aspects of it, everyone seems to be so willing to help, like willing to kind of like do it with you. Like it's not hard to find people that are passionate and kind of fun and just open to just you know, doing this sport that they, that they love, you know, we all love the same sport. We're all kind of participating in the same thing. So yeah. that's one thing that I love about the outdoor community. I don't know if you've experienced that. Obviously it sounds like you have with the skiing community and just how open and fun everyone can be about sharing their experience. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there is no way that I would be where I am today without the help of the friends around me and just, and just people in general. And as you say, people are so like, passionate and excited about their sport and so happy to share it and i think one of the interesting things that, that kind of covers a lot of outdoor sports is quite often people are afraid of the financial commitment of the equipment right and what i found is that whenever you look at some out like an outdoor person's garage or their basement there is just so much unused equipment sitting there and i yeah. think people that are listening to your sport that may be considering getting into climbing or getting into skiing or any of these activities don't be afraid to ask people around you to borrow yeah. stuff or to just have them give you stuff. There's so much unused stuff that's just sitting in everyone's basement and garage. And I, you know, I just picked up a sponsor. I'm wearing their cap. Steel is a, an apparel brand here in, in Jackson Hole. Awesome. Yeah. Um, once I get my consignment of that of new stuff from those guys, you know, I'm going to reach out to my network of friends and find it, find it and see if there's anyone that's trying to get into the sport and kind of give them my hand-me-downs as people have given to me along the way, just to try and help more people get into the sport. But yeah, the community is very giving, uh, very sharing. And the great thing is when you're on a mountain or if you're out there climbing, you're there for, everyone's there for the same reason. Right? And that's yep. just what makes it such a, a beautiful pursuit. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, my, my room, if you, if I were to, spin this camera there's just outdoor gear kind of everywhere i got my ski bag got my skis uh sitting across the wall and all my climbing gear inside my i think half my storage space is outdoor gear so yeah. <laughs> so i i completely and the thing that people don't understand is a lot of that's kind of you acquired it over time like it's not like you bought it all like i mean right. there's people that do and they get into something they're able to buy it outright but most of us it's you know it's kind of a lifelong not even lifelong but like since college like you know you start getting your first whatever and then it turns into you buy the next thing that leads to the next but especially in climbing which is a little bit different than skiing is skiing you got all your own gear it's not like you can just share everything with climbing you can share everything you know right to bring someone out you just you're like hey we're going out anyways we got all the gear all that you need shoes and a harness that's it yeah so it's really easy to get people out and but yeah no the outdoor community i think that's part of what the draw is for me about the outdoors is just that community that is built around it so and I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm sure that the community is something that really ha helps with the staying power, of, at least for me, for the sports that in the outdoors, it's, it leads to a lot more staying power because of how awesome, like the whole community is in my Absolutely. mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, you kind of 
we got into the, the I'm guessing the COVID time or is that, or was this last year, last winter that you uh, just finished? So, with? so yeah. So basically going back to the timeline, it's been six weeks in Revelstoke yeah. then started to figure out the paperwork of everything. Uh, attended a ski race camp in uh, Mount Hood in Oregon last summer okay. right before going to Burning Man and then moved to Jackson um, last October and basically skied for the majority of the, the, the last season and started gotcha. to attend my first fist races. Gotcha. And then, so after moving to, so you moved there last October and yeah. when did the kind of like, I'm sure right after that, you kind of really got into the actual race training and what, uh, uh, what's it called um what trying to remember the word uh <laughs> discipline what discipline yeah. are you going for in skiing so i'm uh i'm, I'm aiming at giant slalom i, I truly slalom. believe that with my fearlessness i would do much better in either downhill or in super g um but i've decided not to, ch to chase either of those two disciplines for a couple of reasons first of all um when you're learning something you're going to have a few blow-ups. You're going to have a few crashes. And yeah. crashes in the technical disciplines, which are slalom and giant slalom, are a lot more forgiving. And yeah. you might you're be going to... slower. Yeah, you're going, going a lot slower. slower. <laughs> yeah, whereas a crash at you know, 80, 90 miles an hour could be season-ending, if not life-ending. And I really yeah. just don't have the time to have a big injury like that and still make it back onto skis in, in time for the 2022 games. Also, yeah. um, from the point of view of safety, the prerequisites for qualification for technical disciplines, which are slalom and giant slalom, are much more lenient because they are much safer than the speed disciplines, which are giant slalom and downhill. And the difference is actually huge. So for anyone that's listening that knows about racing, the B standard entry for slalom and giant slalom is 160 fist points. So if you're a kid and you've been skiing since you were two or three years old and you started racing at seven or eight, whatever, if you're good and you're dedicated to your, your sport, your passion, you should be at 160 fist points by around about the age of 15, 16. And that's the level I need to get to, which would put me in the top 4,000 registered races in the world kind of thing. If I wanted to try to compete for one of the speed disciplines, because of the safety aspect, I would need to be down to 80 fist points and I would need to be ranked in the top 500 in the world. So it's like, it's an order of magnitude harder Plus, it's more dangerous if I have an injury. And because of the amount of length and the amount of space that is required to host a downhill or a Super G race, there are a lot less races to get to, um, gotcha. meaning it's you know, even more harder. So even though that would be my preferred discipline and where I feel my skill set would work best, I've decided to make a slight you know, pivot and aim myself at Giant Slalom. Gotcha. So Giant Slalom just, I didn't realize that there was such a big difference at the entry level for the yeah. being in the top 500 versus the top 4,000. That's a huge yeah. difference in just qualifying. So if yeah. that's the goal, then that makes a lot of sense of, it's a little bit more obtainable. It sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, you know, I, I just, I think if I truly applied myself to it and if we had a normal season, meaning if we didn't have yeah. <laughs> COVID on the horizon right now or looming yeah. over us ever, ever, ever present, I think I would try to compete for both, but, I believe, and we can get into this, I believe that we're going to have a bit of a weird ski season where oh, resorts yeah. might have sure. to shut down for a week here or there. I believe races might randomly be canceled. Let's say the technical director or our coach has been 
tested positive with COVID the day before. Who did he interact with? If he interacted with everyone, okay, the race gets canceled at the last minute. I think we just have to be able to just kind of roll with the punches this year. And to set myself up for, for success, I think I'm just, you know, I'm keen to just take the, the more sure route than, or route than, uh, than trying to hit uh, uh, Super G. Gotcha. And then going into this year, at this point, where did you get to point-wise for, uh, you know, actually hitting that mark of, it, you said it's 185 or 165? 160, yeah, 165. Qualification level, and everyone starts off as a 999er, as they call them. So you start off at 1,000 points. Points go down. So the top guys, the top guy or top two guys in the world are, are at zero points, and it's a handicap from there. Um, so I had six races last year. And managed to get my points down to 560. So about halfway numerically, but as you get closer, obviously it gets harder and harder to get to, attack, to attain each last point. Now the interesting thing is, because I'm coming at this very late, and because I'm, I had a very kind of unorthodox approach to qualifying for the Olympics, it was important for us to kind of segment out um, my route from, you know, never having skied in 2016 to getting to Olympics in 2022. And so last year, after I got back from Revelstoke, I reached out online on, on Reddit, actually, of all places, to r-ski. And I just said, hey, what would it take for someone to get to 165th points? And, you know, it's the internet, so there were a lot of dumb comments. And one guy <laughs> replied back. He was like, hey, I'm a, I'm a U16 coach. Give me some more information. And so I you know, kind of gave him my whole story. And his name's Mike Schneider. I always give him a shout out because really he's, he, he was like yeah. a genius behind architecting all of this for me. He said, look, okay. I'm the exact person that uh, you need to speak to. I teach U16, coach U16 kids, and a lot of my kids graduate from my kind of tuition at 165th points or beyond. He then goes on to write, write like a 2,000 word dissertation on like, <laughs> these are, this is the type of equipment you should buy. These are the type of mountains you should try to live near if you have a choice. Uh, these are the books you should read for like sports psychology. This is the training you should be doing through the summer. And basically just giving me a whole plan from zero yeah. to Olympian. And in the 2020 winter, which just finished, the plan was, A, get as much time as possible on snow because you've got a lot of catching up to do with regards to understanding the sensations of skiing, sorry, skiing and, and, and kind of like carving your turns, et cetera. Uh, and then B, try to get to about eight to 10 races. And the intention was not to try to be competitive in those eight to 10 races, but merely to really understand the race system and to make all of the mistakes that I was bound to make and did make. Yeah. Um, and make them when it wasn't in, when it's not important then the plan going into 2021 was to hit about 20 to 25 races which i have in my in my schedule and now gotcha. really get out there and chase the points i mean i skied 181 days last season to try and catch up with all of the these yeah. kids that have been skiing since <laughs> since single digits yeah so last year did the races stop and everything too i'm assuming when covid kind of hit because that really shortened ski season for pr pretty much everything yeah so. so so march 15th was that fateful day when uh, yeah <laughs> you know here's what happened you know everyone everyone kind of remembers what happened that day some people were lucky enough to get a, a you know a message on their phones or an alert other people like us woke up super early because in jackson there have been 23 inches of new powder that have fallen in the past 24 hours. And so I woke up everyone super early in the house, blasted music, we jumped in the cars, we went to the hill, and we started to hear these rumors that they might not open. We got all the way <laughs> to the hill, and we heard it over the radio from, uh, from one of the guys that was kind of directing traffic. The mountain is not freaking opening today. And so unfortunately, that was 
that was the end of the ski season, or at least the chair uh, lift accessible yeah. ski season. Uh, and that was the end of my race calendar as a result. But we didn't miss a beat. I, uh, we came back, we put on some backcountry gear, and we skinned Snow King that evening. Uh, and I then continued to ski. Like I, I, I hit 100 consecutive days of skiing, which culminated on the 3rd of June. So about 85 of those were in the backcountry. So in terms of continuing to ski, totally didn't miss a beat. Um, haven't really had much experience in backcountry prior to that, but just really got into that side of the sport so much so that when I tallied up my, my records for the backcountry aspect of the season, I'd climbed almost 300,000 vertical feet, which is basically 10 Mount Everest yeah. during, during the Corona season, as we're calling it. Gotcha. And was there a specific area that you kind of stuck to and did a bunch of the same like hills and mountains? I'm yeah, sure. there were a couple of places. So we're super blessed here in Jackson that we have access yeah. to a lot of awesome backcountry. And the Teton Pass, which goes between Wyoming and Idaho, um, is probably some of the most amazing backcountry skiing in all of North America when you take into account how easy it is to access it. So we started off in uh, just kind of skinning Smoking, which is the small hill here in town. It's about 1,600 vertical feet. Um, and the beautiful thing is they continue to groom that all the way through until the end of April, really? early May. So we could still get access to groomed runs and corduroy, um, which was fantastic. That's crazy. Um, I did not, I didn't realize that they were doing, I, I kind of assumed that they just shut down all that kind of stuff with the grooming and all that. So that's kind of cool that they continue to groom that. Yeah. I mean, it literally turned into the town gym. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I can say, uh, and I wrote a message to Smoking this morning for, for something else, but I can say that that kept a lot of people sane um, with, with gyms and all other kind of like, you know, indoor fitness being shut down with with the mountain jhmr being shut down the fact that snow king was right there the fact that they allowed us to to go uphill the fact that they kept grooming it um really kept a lot of people sane which was amazing mm -hmm. but you know there's togori which is about an hour in that direction there's the pass like i said and then also grand targi opened for uphill three days after on march 18th and so we had you know so many options um, and it was just great exploring, exploring Jackson Hole uh, and just getting out into some really, really gnarly, um, fun terrain. Yeah. So did you have some, uh, so speaking of getting into backcountry, so did you have uh, friends that kind of got you into it, showed you the ropes, kind of taught you all the, because I know there's a lot that goes into that with avalanche and all that stuff. And there's, it's a whole other side of the sport that takes a lot more kind of preparation I guess and a lot more kind of you know being aware than you know skiing yeah. and bounce yeah absolutely so um I've had a couple of very very basic avi training courses uh for the heli skiing uh and, and I don't when I say that I don't mean any other type of courses you'll go down and sit down and read books and go out and take snow for a day but just basic awareness that you get whenever you'll go on like a heli or a cat skiing trip and then other than that I would always have a partner and I was fortunate enough to kind of be connected with a guy who used to be a guide up on Mount Rainier and whenever yeah. we do anything spicy I would just follow his lead and you know just kind of like monkey see monkey do kind of thing yeah um, <laughs> there's a great community of skiers here in Jackson a lot of people that love being out in the backcountry so everyone looks out for each other I think we only had two fatalities uh, last season uh, and the first one didn't come all the way through until April uh, which was which was a really really good going, but yeah, it's it's dangerous. It definitely is, and there are a few moments when it, when when you're out there and it's kind of like you know butthole pucker up time because it, you're just not sure. Um, 
but for people that are considering getting into backcountry this year, I would definitely suggest getting some gear and just just practicing on your on your local hill, local hill. A lot of them offer um, uphill traffic. You're allowed to mm -hmm. get out there and just practice and get used to your equipment. I mean, the last thing you want to do is have an equipment blow up when you're super remote and just yeah. it's going to take you four or five hours to walk out of there if you're if your skins break or if some if, if a binding breaks or something like that. And I think going into this season, backcountry is going to help keep a lot of people sane. I, I really believe that the mountains are going to open, close, open, close, open, close. I think we'll have small outbreaks of certain hills and just out of safety, the mountains decide to shut down for five days or two weeks or whatever it may be. And having the equipment to be able to get into the backcountry, um, which can really just be something as simple as a way to carry your skis on your back, um, is going to be is going to be super important for this season ahead. Gotcha. Yeah. So when it comes to getting into the backcountry, what were some of the first steps that you took personally? Just yep. uh, kind of talk about that for a minute. Yeah. So absolute necessity is Beacon Shovel Probe. Um, you can go down and, and grab them at the shop. Unfortunately, the beacon is not cheap, but it's definitely cheaper than loss of life. So figure out how to get a, a beacon maybe on eBay or something like that for anyone that's listening and, and figure out how to use it. Practice practice with friends before you need to use it. Um, and then, you know, fortunately, I, I'd done a tiny bit of skinning before with a few other friends that I'd made here in Jackson pre-season last year. So I kind of had the basics of how the binding works, how to put on the skins and, and kind of like how, how to kind of like approach the mountain. Um, and as I said, we started off by just going straight across to the skiing, uh, the, uh, the King, Snow King. So our first day of backcountry of the Corona season was the same day that they shut the mountain, but just over at Snow King. And we just kind of eased our way into it. And then depending on conditions and depending on who was around to be a ski partner, we'd start to do things that were a little bit more spicy. And just, I felt like I was a sponge really, just absorbing all of the knowledge from the people that have been skiing these hills in Jackson for the last yeah. 10, 20 years, or the people that have have been skiing in the backcountry for the last, you know, 10, 15 years. What's the biggest thing that you've kind of enjoyed about the backcountry versus, you know, skiing on your normal, you know, resort runs? Yeah. And so, what have you kind of, and what, what do you feel like you've kind of, the biggest thing that you've kind of pulled from that that's going to help you in pursuits of uh, qualifying for the Olympics? Oh yeah, lots of things. So don't get me wrong. I absolutely love just sitting on a chairlift and having a nice conversation with someone and then pointing my skis down the hill at 70 miles an hour and getting back on that chairlift and just doing that for a whole day. Absolutely <laughs> love doing that. But there's something so magical um, that when you have the knowledge of the backcountry and you have the equipment that you just look around and find a mountain on the horizon, find it on Google Maps, figure out an entrance path, look at the snow conditions, you know, figure out how the wind was and just kind of understand all of that stuff and just make a plan and just go ski it. Like there's mm -hmm. something so incredible about the freedom that you get from just being able to do that. And I would spend hours driving around and I would take the drone out with me and just try to plot like, like insane new routes. There's a couple of great books for this part of the world as well that, that give you a lot of guidance. Um, so that's probably the freedom is probably the thing that I love the most. Now, I would say that I pulled two things from uh, my backcountry experience that are going to help me on the way to the Olympics. First of all, is when you're skiing in the late season and when you're skiing out of bounds and you're skiing like backcountry where that snow has never been groomed or it's never been kind of messed with, yeah. then the variability of that snow is huge. 
you could be on sun cups at one moment, you could be on perfect power at another moment, you could be on something that for some reason has been packed hard or wind crust or all of this stuff. And really understanding how to feel what's going on under your skis and how to navigate that and, and how to deal with that is incredible learning. And I would definitely take that into the race world with me as in coming across ruts and just really understanding how to stay in control at speed on super varied conditions. That's one thing. Um, and then the other thing is a level of fitness. Um, like I said, having climbed 300,000 vertical feet in that period after the chairlift shut down uh, and doing all of that at altitude. I mean, I'm at 7,300 feet here in my house and you know, some of the things we're going up to are 12, 13,000 feet. Um, it just gave me a level of fitness that I probably never had before in my life to the point where, um, you know, we have a Peloton bike here for exercise where I'm finishing like sick in the world out of 25,000 people. And that's nothing that I try to achieve. It's just that when you are getting fit and you're getting exercise as a side effect of trying to get to the thing that you really want to do, which is the skiing, it, it yeah. just kind of like fitness comes to you naturally because you're not even thinking about it. You just, you know, you're just craving to ski another line. Um, and so, yeah, we, we would get out there and do really big days. I remember going over to Targi and doing seven laps of Targi, um, 12 and a half thousand feet. I was out there for like eight hours. And that's just because the snow conditions are so good and I wanted to keep skiing. Um, and the fitness you get from doing that day in, day out you know, for, for months on end, uh, I think my last day of uh, backcountry was the 7th of August. So we pretty much had five months of it just gives yeah. you a level of fitness that I'm going to take into the Olympics um, that I probably would not have got had I had just been sitting on chairlifts and running through gates. Gotcha. So pretty much you were able to ski all the way until August and then you just had a small three month kind of little bit of a break. What yeah. have you done kind of for training uh, while you're, or was it more of just like a, I'm sure that you were still training a little bit in some way, but I'm sure a lot of it was kind of a break from just that nonstop every single day, just getting yeah. at it. Yeah. So I left Jackson first week of August. The plan mm -hmm. was in a normal year to go back down to Chile uh, or maybe go to New Zealand and just to keep mm -hmm. skiing, to stay on snow, to keep building that muscle memory, to keep, to keep building my, my skill set um, to help me ever more with qualification this year in the Olympics. The, the, in 2022. Um, as we all know, travel has been really, really strange um, as a result of COVID, as a result of Corona. Uh, and so Chile didn't even have, they had one of their best snow seasons on record, but they didn't even open their resorts this, this, this year, which is super sad. Um, Argentina opened a few chairlifts, but it was impossible to get into. There weren't, there weren't even domestic flights inside of Argentina. Uh, and getting into New Zealand was completely out of the question. So wasn't able to do any of that stuff. So kind of pivoted, um, even though my father's from Jamaica, uh, even though I've traveled to approximately a third of the world countries, I've never been to Jamaica, even though it's the country that I'm really planning on representing. Um, I have citizenship, I have the passport. And so I thought to myself, what better time than now to get back to the fatherland, shall we say, and just go and explore and just work on general fitness, um, mm -hmm. but also kind of tick off that box of understanding the, the history of the country that, my, that I'm from, my father's from, and, and just understanding the culture and the people. So I spent the last three months in Jamaica. Um, I traveled around the entire island, the entire coastline, and just kept myself physically strong. I was in the gym five, six times a week without fail. Um, you know, swimming, lots of cardio, just kind of keeping myself in the, in the best shape possible, 
while I was away from the skis and got back into Jackson last week and have skied Grand Targhee twice and we'll be skiing Jackson Hole Mountain Resort tomorrow for opening day. Awesome. So Jackson Hole is opening tomorrow. That's their official opening day. Yeah. Nice. yeah that was, and I think Snow King is on the 5th of December, which I think that's next Friday. Gotcha. So it's all kind of starting to open up. Yeah, we just had, uh, I think, A Basin opened up like two weeks ago or something like that. So, and they're usually one of the first, them, Keystone, Loveland, all those initial places. And I think all the big resorts are opened up for their first initial, you know, the, the White Ribbon's death. Yeah. So, <laughs> but we just got 10 inches. So it's all, we're, we're getting more and more snow every single day. But yeah, you know, we. We had a decent system come through two weeks ago. I just missed it. I think mm -hmm. there was 14 inches that came down over the weekend. And so I drove to the airport to pick up a couple of friends yesterday. And I noticed the cat, the cat machines were out there grooming sections of the mountain that definitely were not open last season. So I think we're going to have mm -hmm. a lot more of the mountain open. Um, and the conditions over Targi yesterday and last Friday were, were solid. I mean, there was still like a few rocks poking through on the groomers. Mm -hmm. I did not go off the groomers at all. I just don't feel like hitting something that I can't see under the surface this early yeah. in the season. Um, but the conditions were great. I think we're going to have a lot more than the white ribbon of death this year. Oh, yeah. Uh, a Basin, I saw them. They're getting close to opening up to the very top. So they're, they're, they're second lift that goes to the top of the mountain. So they're getting close with that. I know Loveland should be getting close. One more 10 inch dump. And I think that they'll probably be able to open up a decent amount more. So fingers yeah. crossed on that coming sooner rather than later. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, actually uh, speaking of Jamaica though, Jamaica is a beautiful country. I went down there actually last summer with my dad brought me and my sisters. We were lucky enough to run to a family where the guy actually moved up when he was like 11 from Jamaica and they kind of showed us around and it was an awesome experience and we made it around to all the, there, there's a ton to do there that keeps sure. like definitely kept you fit. I mean, we went into one of the, the blue holes. Uh, mm -hmm. We swam in the bay with the biofluorescent algae, yep. all of that stuff. We went over to the nine mile, uh, yep. nine mile. Uh, yeah. The, the, the white beach or the nine mile or oh, the, seven, the seven mile in the seven grill. mile, seven, seven mile in the grill. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So we got around in our short little seven day trip. We got around a lot more than we were planning on because we were lucky enough to run into a really cool family from the States that right. kind of small world. They lived in the same area in Florida that we lived in when we lived down there when I was like a baby. But my dad, somehow they lived at this area where this guy would run by our old apartment complex down there. We're like, well, we can trust them. They're not like some crazy people that are going to try and kill us. So, but yeah. we were lucky enough and got to meet his like 99 year old grandma that has this little tiny house on the coast. Nice. That was, so super cool experience and it's beautiful country. Jerk yeah. chickens, love the jerk chicken down there. So, but so what area did you kind of stay in while down there? Were you in Montego Bay or? Yeah, so in, uh, I, I moved around a bit. I spent I six it. weeks in uh, St. Anne's, which is two parishes yeah. across the Montego Bay. Mm -hmm. um, you probably went to Duns River Falls or something like that yes. in that area. Uh, we didn't go down to the Dung. We, we went down to the a different one that the guy told us is better. We didn't do the actual falls that you just kind of walk up to. We went into one right. where you kind of, 
it was like a layered place and you there's places you could jump off of and like a rope swing and right right just a bunch of swimming pools kind of layered i forget the name of it off the top uh, of my YS head, pools. probably i'm, I'm yeah. not 100% sure but yeah that sounds I think, I think familiar. That's the one. yeah i think that's yeah. the one you went to because i went there um so i spent maybe six weeks in st Anne's because the president of the ski federation we do have a ski federation that's a really interesting story as well uh lives in that area so i stayed near him for the most of it uh, i spent a couple of weeks just in the car driving around so spent uh some time in the grill in kingston mm -hmm. uh in port antonio on the northeast side uh treasure beach in the south and then i spent uh the last five weeks in montego bay uh, where I had gotcha. access to a, to a great gym and just like a personal trainer and all of this, all this good stuff. You said uh, the ski federation there. So is yeah. that Jamaica's ski federation? So I'll tell you the story. It's a really yeah. interesting story. So last year when I was trying to figure out all the paperwork and the administration side of getting to the Olympics, I had to figure out whether or not there was a governing body that represents skiers for Jamaica. And it turns out that there is. But I just found this random Hotmail account on on the internet there wasn't a website or anything else that looked kind of official so i sent this guy a message richard is his name and I, I told him my story and he kind of fobbed me off thinking that i wasn't you know serious a guy that had just started, started skiing at the age of 32 and had never been to a race and all of this stuff so he kind of fobbed me off with a bunch of admin tasks to go and do which i promptly did and came back to him he's like okay it, it seems as though you're serious so richard replies he says are you, uh, are you going to be in England at any time during the next, uh, you know, for the next six, uh, three, four months? Because I spend my summers in England. And mm -hmm. I spent absolutely no time in England at all. I left England in 2006. Uh, I've spent more time in Jamaica this year than I spent in England in the past 10 years, as an example. Um, and I, I looked at my calendar and I had a window where I was going to be transiting through London for four hours, coming back from Ibiza to New York. And so I said, Richard, I can change my flight or I have this four hour window. He's like, four hours is great. So he picks me up at the airport. He's this white guy, first of all, so I'm a little bit confused. And we go off for a beer at the pub closest to the airport. And I tell him my story about how I left England uh, right after university, how I worked in finance for a while, how I gave that all up to pursue a, a DJing career, uh, and, how, and how now I'm you know, pursuing the ski dream. And Richard's a 79 year old English guy that's been in Jamaica for the last 50 years. And Richard says to me, you and I are like kindred spirits. And I look at him confused that like, what do we have in common, dude? And so he says, let me tell you. He says, I graduated from law. Uh, I studied at Cambridge. And after a few years of working in a bank, yeah. I just decided, you know what? There's gotta be more to life than this. Now, earlier on, maybe 10 years prior to this, he used to ski for England. And he, mm -hmm. had, a, he had a horrible car crash. So he was, he was out for a whole season. And he decided that he wanted to go down to the Southern Hemisphere to, um, to catch up with his peer group, to do some training in the, in, in the, in the summer yeah. during the Southern Hemisphere. Now he had no money. And so what he did is he phoned up the Times, the newspaper and said, hey, I'm gonna go down to Chile and Argentina and I want to you know, write an article for you guys on skiing in that region and just travel. And they, they were just like, who are you? Like, have you written anything before? No, no. so it was like, okay, uh, how about this kid? You go away, write the article and maybe we'll publish it. So he says, okay, deal. Puts the phone down, picks up the phone to British Airways and says, hi, I'm the foreign travel correspondent for the Times of London. I'd like you to pay for my flights to get down to Chile. And they're like, okay, let's do it. So they, they gave him a free flight. Now why I kind of embellish the details of that story is because of the fact that it was a sponsored ticket, British Airways said that he could get to Chile however he wanted. And so he chose to go to Chile via Jamaica. 
So we spent a few days, I think five days in Montego Bay, just, you know, being a tourist, drinking rum on a glass bottle, yeah. floor, <laughs> jumping off of waterfalls, all of that stuff. Anyway, yeah. continued on to uh, his skiing career. He wrote the articles, which did in fact get published by the Times of London, but nothing much came of the ski career. Anyway, fast forward back to working in the city of London, uh, working in, in, in the finance sector, and just being bored of, of his existence. A light bulb went off in his head. He's like, there's more to life than this. I'm gonna move everything and move the family to Jamaica. So he packed up everything, moved to Jamaica, bought a huge plot of land, uh, built a hotel on it. Anyway, in the early 90s, his young, his, his kid, uh, who was half Jamaican, was skiing for Britain at the time, or at least like working towards yeah. skiing for Britain at the time. And he had this light bulb go off in his head where he's like, well, the 1988 Jamaican bobsled team just had a lot of success, or at least, you know, they got some notoriety, shall mm -hmm. we say, uh, which culminated in the Cool Runnings movie, the Disney movie in 1993. Yeah. He said to his son, why don't we set up a Jamaican Ski Federation and instead of you trying to compete for England, it would be much better if you tried to compete for Jamaica. And that's why we have a Ski Federation. So his son, Andrew, was the first skier that was officially registered with the Federation International to Ski by the Jamaican Ski Federation in the, in the mid 90s. And so mm -hmm. that part of my journey was already taken care of for me. I didn't have to go through the rigmarole and the admin of setting up a, a ski federation. So quite a fun story. So just this guy probably thought you were crazy out of nowhere, just like, who, who's this just randomly emailing me about skiing for Jamaica? Like... Yeah, exactly. And he's <laughs> like, wait, how old are you? How much ski experience do you have? Are you serious about this? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that he, like, yeah, <laughs> I can only imagine when he opened up the email, he was probably like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you emailed them out of the blue too. Like totally, just... <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they've been super supportive. Yeah. Um, when I applied for my visa, for my US visa, to mm -hmm. spend the amount of time that I'm spending here training, I was able to walk in there with a letter from the Jamaican Olympic Association and the Minister for Sports, because um, they were all super excited about having a skier go to the Olympics. And so we're going to pivot into something a little bit different now. So having not known anything about the Olympics prior to even going to just be a spectator at the last one in, uh, in Korea. What's, what's that kind of process been kind of learning all the ins and outs of getting to it, what you need to do, uh, who you need like to contact and all of the, you know, clerical side of things. Cause I'm sure that's, that's been a lot to kind of learn and take in. Yeah, and so back to your back to your previous point about having a lot of people around that have been super mm -hmm. helpful in the in, in the scene and in the sport. Gordon Gray was you know super instrumental in helping me understand all of the disciplines and why we aim for one thing and not the other, and helping me try to you know figure out which sport to go after. Mike Schneider was the guy who helped me just kind of figure out the plan of what I would need to do, need to do for training, and then mm -hmm. finding Richard Richard Sam online, the president of the Ski Federation. He's been super helpful at getting me registered with FIRS and. Um, you know, putting me in contact with the correct regulatory bodies with inside of Jamaica so that I have their blessing to go to the Olympics because you can't, you know, if, you're, if your country doesn't want you there, then you're kind of, you're lost. So yeah. <laughs> um, it hasn't been that hard. But if you zoom out and look at the project as a whole, it seems like an incredibly daunting task with a lot to do. But just like, you know, climbing a mountain, it, it starts with the first step and you put your head down and you just kind of keep taking those steps. And eventually, before you realize it, I'm you know, maybe 40% of the way into this project now. Mm -hmm. um, and it 
and it, it just it starts to come to you if you just kind of break it up into little pieces and chip away at them one at a time so having never skied like really before like 2016 um and never really been like have have you done sports before in the past or did you grow up doing sports in england or were was there anything kind of outdoors that you were kind of into before this or? yeah so you know, I, I played sports. I played football for my uh, for, for my uh, school up until the age of about sixteen. Um, was never an outstanding player, but just like a hardworking player. Um, and then I would say that I lived the complete polar opposite of an outdoorsy, healthy lifestyle as a DJ for the last ten years, um, yeah. which meant that I spent most of my time in nightclubs or festivals or in hotel rooms or or on planes, um, not getting much sleep. Um, so it's been a complete shift from, from that kind of former phase of my life. Uh, but no, nothing really sporting as a young kid. But I think when you approach these things as an adult, you realize that you don't want to waste time with these things. You <laughs> set an objective, you set a task, you set a goal, and you just get out there and you work on that thing. And if you're having difficulty um, as a mature adult, you have the ability to reach out and ask for help from people around you. And just get things done. And, you know, I, I ski bell to bell, bell every time I'm out there. I love being out there on the slopes. And I just love kind of brute forcing the problem of understanding what's going on with skis and just trying different things every time I'm out there and just figuring it out that way. And with the racing side of things, how much race training have you actually participated in? Because it sounds like you've done, you had your whole backcountry season last season. But before that, how much like actual training in that discipline have you actually been able to actually accomplish so far yeah definitely not enough and the gating factor for that is is merely the cost it's super it's it's really expensive to get the type the level of coaching that i want mm-hmm. um and so go so far i've had you know the the ski race camp that i went to at mount hood in 2019 i was back in mount hood this year with another one of my sponsors twohammers.org uh, sponsored me to join a ski race camp with Phil and Steve Mayer, two of the most decorated ski racers uh, of U.S. history. Um, and then I've done a bunch of kind of drop-in sessions, master sessions, either at Snow King or here at Jackson Hall. The intention going into the season is to put the little sponsor money that I've kind of been able to put together over the summer mm-hmm. after all of the news outlets that I've been featured in, such as Powder and Backcountry Magazine and all of that stuff towards coaching. And hoping that I can get at least two days of coaching all the way through this season uh, per week, if, if not more. Mm-hmm. And with the racing, uh, having not been like too much into, you, you know, you said that sports wise, you played football, soccer, I'm assuming yep, up yep. until you're about 16. And just cause a lot of my listeners are America, yeah, not, sure. not, not that football, but um, <laughs> After that, you haven't really done sports since then. So I'm sure getting back out in the competitive nature of racing and, you know, that, um, how does, uh, does anything with DJing kind of transfer over to that kind of, because I'm sure the DJ seems a little bit competitive and that kind of stuff. So does anything like that kind of, do you feel like anything's transferred over from that into your ski career or has it been a full 180 of just like everything in your mindset? It's definitely been a 180 in terms of like health and mm-hmm. being mindful of how, how I treat my body 100%. But in terms of um, having the ability to perform in front of large crowds, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the same. There's a crossover there. Having the ability to uh, you know, jump on a plane with all of your gear and go and perform as necessary 
there's a lot of mm-hmm. parallels there um, and not letting the kind of logistics of travel discombobulate you and kind of put you in, out of your A-game kind of space. Um, there are some parallels, not many. <laughs> <laughs> so getting into the whole competitive, what's been your kind of favorite thing about getting out there, having your first few races? Because how many races have you officially been a part of with this yeah, so far? Six, in the- six races so far. I will say that my favorite thing so uh, up until this point has been a continuation of what has yeah. been the thread of this podcast has been the support from people around me. Um, you know, the coaches that are there with their other athletes are always giving mm-hmm. me pointers, helping me, directing me, because uh, I'm obviously not showing up with a coach. Um, if they're filming their own kids go down the run, they'll film me and send me that as well. And lots of people have been giving me like video critique as a result of my races. Um, People have offered that I, you know, come to races that are in their hometown and come and stay with them. And I have this awesome video of being in the starting blocks uh, at my most recent race, which was March in, uh, in Sun Valley. And just like everyone's cheering for me. I mean, I'm going to come in dead last. As I said, um, yeah. the aim was not to be competitive in the 2020 season, but everyone just loves the story. You know, I'm a 37 year old guy that's trying to get to the Olympics and represent Jamaica that yeah. is new to the sport that shows people that not only minorities can compete and have fun in this sport because it's, you know, we're not very well represented, but also people that may not have started skiing when they were two or four, or maybe they didn't ski when they were at college that may have felt that they've, the boat has passed them by, they've missed the opportunity to, to get into the sport. And that's absolutely not true. As I said, starting at 32, I'm, I'm addicted and hoped I absolutely love it. And I, yeah. I hope that other people that are, you know, in their thirties or forties that may not have tried the sport might hear this and, get out there and have the courage and confidence yeah. to give it a shot. Yeah, definitely not, not exactly the same thing that he came from, but with uh, Milo and the environment that he came from. Yeah. Definitely a, uh, strong parallel with the age that you guys kind of started. And that's yeah. kind of the biggest thing that I love with hearing stories and everyone's different journey is how unique everyone's path into the outdoor community is. And, you know, the outdoor community and just the outdoor sports in general can be a little bit intimidating to someone that's, you know, never participated in them before. Like, you know, you're dealing with massive mountains, massive cliffs, massive with like climbing, skiing, uh, mountain biking, any of the outdoor sports, it's, it's a little bit intimidating. And just being able to show that it's really not as intimidating as it seems. Because I feel like a lot of it is just kind of like a, how it's portrayed, like, the only thing that you really see in like major media is like, you know, free solo. I don't know if you've seen that with like, yeah, but like yeah. it's portrayed as that in like major media, outdoor sports or the adventure sports, quote unquote, which yeah. is like, but they don't have to be. I mean, it's not, you don't have to be the most extreme climber, the most extreme skier to just get out there and enjoy these sports along with everyone else. But the way that's portrayed can kind of, I feel like turn a little, like if you've never been ex, like exposed to it and if you don't have friends that get you out for the first time, you know, you're probably not going to go out and just find it yourself unless yeah, someone yeah. actually kind of drags you into it. So, but I, well, one, it, one of the major reasons why I do this podcast is to show how unique everyone's journey into that outdoor community is and how easy it can be. And she just missed the jump. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, but just, 
it all starts yeah. with the first step, right? So for yeah, skiing, it, does. it starts yeah. with the pizza and French fries on the magic carpet and the yep. <laughs> and the green runs. And and for skiers, it start. I mean, for climbers, it starts with the bouldering wall and all of that stuff. It and you're yeah. right. Sometimes the, the the free solo videos or all of the crazy videos that come out from the big production houses can mm -hmm. be. Um, counterproductive to getting new people into the sport because of that just seems so overwhelming and so far yeah. from their reach and grasp. But uh, yeah, it, it all starts with the first step. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, I, I think that hearing the journeys of people that get into it, especially people that get into it in like their after college, after, you know, like when most people are supposed to get into these types of things, like, you know, just kind of just shows it's, it's really not as far-fetched as kind of can be kind of put out to kind of feel like I feel like totally. so and it's I don't know I just love hearing the journeys of people how they got into it and just you know that light bulb and like the joy that the outdoors bring to everybody because it's something that should be shared and I I want to show people that it is very accessible you know you don't need much to go to, uh, not not even just climbing and skiing but you know for you I, I'm sure that you with the backcountry, you were skinning up everything, but you know, someone doesn't need that much to just drive out, go on a hike, actually experience the mountains for the first time that could spur them into then getting into more and more in the mountains. So it's, it's really, you know, like you said, that first step and kind of that first experience in the mountains, your aha moment when you're up at that cabin up in BC and just like, yeah. this is cool. <laughs> like, yeah. so. And it definitely inspires a lot of, I want to be here. So, but going back into what we're, what we're actually talking about with the whole ski racing thing. So what's been your favorite thing about, uh, you know, being in the competitions again, though, you, you're talking about just having all the uh, different coaches and different people cheering you on and all that kind of stuff uh what what about the competition side of things is there uh kind of like a drive for that too and just like kind of you know i i don't know i i'm a i grew up playing sports and you know competitions and stuff like that and soccer i grew up playing soccer too and yeah kind of like when you're actually out there like actually competing i feel like i get into a different mindset than when i'm actually out there kind of just casually doing a sport i don't know if you've you've noticed the difference between like your casual runs versus your you know your competition mindset or if that's something that yeah kind of with being a dj and you know performing in front of crowds you don't really have that kind of i don't know if it, i'd call it like nervousness or not really nerves but more like when i'm in a competition i feel like there's like a hyper focus for me versus like if i'm just like casually out there there's less of that like yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> so the thing that I the thing that I enjoy the most about the competitive side of things, especially coming from mm -hmm. so far behind everyone else in the field, is watching progress and just understanding how, yeah. um, or seeing how my understanding of what's going on out there. I mean, let's let's not forget that most of these races are pretty much on sheet ice. Um, they're pretty steep, and you're required to yeah. make turns exactly where the gates are. And because I have you know, one of the lowest rankings in terms of who I'll be competing against when I'm out in the in the race. It typically means I'm going to start in 60th or 70th or 80th. And so the, the course is super rutted up um, by the time I get to it. But just really watching my progress and seeing the trajectory of, 
as we said, starting at a thousand points and, and slowly getting that number lower and lower and lower and close to where I need to be and being more confident to be able to be more aggressive and to kind of like bring a little bit more speed into things. And as I said, I only got the opportunity to go to six races last season because of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. I'm super excited to watch that progression this season. I'm super excited to just kind of like get into a groove where I'll just spend a, you know several days a week just training on in gates and just mm-hmm. nailing that technique and just applying that to the races and, and starting to catch up with the rest of the field. I think it'll be interesting to see if I get as much support when I start to become competitive with the rest of the guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Like when you start beating those people that are like, oh, where did he come from? Yeah, so, exactly. But so did you have a favorite race from last season? Um, so last year I did, so six races means three meets. You do two races at each yeah. meet. So I started gotcha. off in Big Sky. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that mountain, Big Sky, Montana. Uh, then went up to Lake Louise, uh, which I was really excited to do well at, but was kind of suffering through a foot injury, a boot-induced foot injury during that period. So didn't do anywhere near as well as I thought. And then I would just say that I think I really enjoyed Sun Valley. There's a great racing culture out in Sun Valley. Um, the conditions uh, for the first race were incredibly challenging, but I've been told that that is pretty much as close as you'll get to a World Cup level of, of of race surface and so i feel great that i finished that race um when half of the field didn't even finish um so yeah probably sun valley was the most fun awesome and this year when does the racing kind of start back up for you because i know that's a big thing that's going to lead to your uh actually you know qualifying and everything so yeah so the beautiful thing is i could literally spend the entire season coach with coaches and training and gates and just go to one race meet and in two races pop out two excellent finishes and be qualified. It's the point system is not a cumulative thing. It's just based on an average of my best two results. So technically I only need two races to be able to, to get to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, the calendar starts right here in Jackson Hall, uh, less than two miles away from where I'm sitting right now at the at Snow King on the 17th of December, I believe in my first two races. Um, and then my second two races will be right after the new year back in Big Sky on the 6th and the 7th of January. And those two races are in the same day or are they spread out over like a couple days? It, it depends. So typically they're spread out over days. You do um, each race is two runs. Mm-hmm. So you'll typically do the two runs on one day and then you come back the next day for the next race. Um, but on, some, uh, on the calendars, I have noticed that they do those two races on, on one day. Haven't experienced that yet, but um, apparently that's a thing. Gotcha. So, what's your goal with? So, you said with training this year, uh, this season, you're looking to actually do like two days with the coach and in the gates. And then outside of that, are you just going to be looking to get like runs in and get that, keep that cardio up and all of that? Absolutely. So, that'll be two days per week that I'd love to do with the coach. Mm-hmm. And then as much time as possible in gates, even by myself, I, I kind of have that mindset that if you just give me a stopwatch, I can compete against myself. That's, that's, all, I, that's all I need is a stopwatch. And that is enough for me to be excited and to keep going yeah. out there and to keep pushing. Um, so hoping to uh, set up a partnership with Snow King to be able to do that over there. Um, mm-hmm. Other than that, I plan to ski absolutely every day. I don't plan to take off a day as I did last year. Um, yeah. But I plan to be a lot more disciplined this year at staying on my race skis or staying on a pair of carving skis and not getting too mm-hmm. pulled into the off piece and into the powder skiing side of it. Although it does help with like the overall learning of the sport. Now I'm on a clock. I've got 14 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've got 14 months to qualify. 
And so I want to be focusing most of my time on, uh, on the same type of skiing that I'm going to compete in. We also, we also have Peloton and a tonal here, so I can keep up my strength and, uh, and, and cardio. And I plan to be, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I was, I'm going to hit the Peloton right after this. Mm -hmm. So what's a normal training day kind of look like for you personally, you know, getting to where you're at now, I'm sure you've learned from, like you said, you've had a lot of help from a lot of the community and everything. And I'm sure the training's kind of, as you've learned more, it's kind of probably, it kind of advanced, I guess, same as everything else. And you've learned different ways. But yeah. For you. The key thing is to get on that hill for the first chair with mm -hmm. my race skis and to just really, you know, abuse the fact that when you're skiing down corduroy, especially if you're the first, you know, up there in the first 10, half, 10 minutes, half an hour of the day, mm -hmm. the consistency you get on that corduroy with a, you know, with a nice pair of race skis just allows you to kind of like truly understand what's going on under your feet, under those skis, and just kind of hone in that feeling so that when you get on something a little bit more chopped up or when you're on a race course and it's rutted because you're the 60th person down, you can really kind of like, decipher what's going on under the ski. Um, so that's the thing I try to do every day, just spend the first two hours on, on, on race skis, even if it's a powder day. Um, mm -hmm. And then when things get a little bit chopped up, I kind of, you know, I, I take two or three pairs of skis to the hill with me and just kind of pull, them, pull which one out, pull the one out that I need for that specific moment of training. Gotcha. So what, from the beginning for the race side of thing do you think it's been kind of the hardest to learn so far for you or kind of understand and kind of like moving forward in like your training and like actually the learning of the sport since you're still relatively new yeah you got a ton of time in and a lot of it was backcountry but when it comes to actually understanding what's going on on the you know like you said understanding what's going on underneath your skis and all that kind of stuff what's been kind of like the hardest thing for you personally kind of learning wise when it comes to the race and all of that yeah so when you are racing and you are doing specific disciplines mm -hmm. there are specific specifications for the ski and at the start of last season i was gifted a pair of giant slalom race skis and they were actually the previous regulation which were a much harder ski to ski than the current regulation so they're 67 millimeters underfoot uh, 193 centimeters in length but the, the kicker is that they were 35 meter turning radius. And so as someone that's still relatively new to skiing, understanding how to get enough pressure into that ski and how to do it at enough speed, because a 35, turning meter, 35 meter turning radius is huge. That was probably the, the most difficult thing that I had. Um, I picked up a pair of current year's regulation, this current year's regulation skis uh, halfway through the season, which are 30 meter turning radius. Um, still a big ski but just like really learning how to push and then and, and turn and activate that ski and get it on edge and, and make it turn for you as, as opposed to kind of like skidding your turns and all of those bad things that we bad habits that we have gotcha and when it comes to you're talking about ski regulations is that for so when it comes to racing if you want to talk about that for a minute and just yeah. um so for the racing is there specific skis that each person because i've never really gotten into ski racing like i watch yeah. it i love watching it and i understand the point system enough when i'm watching it in like the olympics or the the major ski races or whatever i'm watching but i, I guess i've never even thought about like uh the skis that 
uh, each racer is wearing and actually keeping people kind of consistent with that and, and if there is any kind of what you were just talking about so there is an eight page document that tells you exactly the specification and the width and the height and the radius and the and the weight and all of these things it's in, incredibly complicated um, and hopefully I'll have someone that just kind of handles that for me as I get closer <laughs> to the Olympics um, but yeah so to keep it competitive as you said and to keep it fair mm -hmm. the skis have to be of an exact dimension they have to be of the exact width they have to be of the same turning radius and, and all of these things to try to prevent people from gaming the system uh, and mm -hmm. getting an unfair advantage so that side of it is, is, is pretty complicated but unfortunately I have a, a bunch of racer friends that have helped me out along the way yeah does that change with height because I feel like you, you'd have to know the skis no. are the same for so yeah. you could be so I'm sure that there's like a sweet spot in like height that are like the best for racers yeah. then well height um, and height and weight right yeah so for, yeah. for, for, for slalom, you find that people are typically like small and, 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 and low center of gravity helps being super turny-turny. And then if you go to the other end of the spectrum, downhill, you want to be like a beast like Steve Nyman, who's one of my buddies out here, you know, weigh 220 mm -hmm. pounds of, of muscle. Um, because obviously those 220 pounds are, are going down the hill much faster than your 160 pound competitor just by virtue of gravity, right? Yeah. And then, uh, so... I didn't realize that all the skis. So yeah, like you said, and uh, I'm sure the height, I mean, height's such a big thing when it comes to actually feeling comfortable on a set of skis and being too short or being too tall for a set of skis can affect that. So I'm sure there's a little bit of a disadvantage for people that don't fit the, the ski that they have set out. <laughs> yeah, so to make things a little bit more interesting, not only did I start skiing uh, at the age of 32, but I'm also the same height as, as Michael Jordan. I'm six foot six. <laughs> <laughs> so the skis are a little bit short for you, you're saying? You know, they're actually okay. Uh, I'm riding 190s. They're, they're okay. Yeah, so I mean, maybe the higher center of gravity is not helping me out. There aren't many ski mm -hmm. races that are over six foot or over six two, at least in the giant yeah. slalom discipline. Um, but you know, I, just like with everything else, I'm going to yeah. deal with the, the the deck that I've been, the cards that I've been dealt. They're they're one nineties. You said that seems a little well. That actually fits not too bad for you then, because I have one seventies. I'm five ten, so right, right. But they're not race skis though, so they're not longer and more stable for that speed and control. Yeah. They're more all mountain skis that I got, but. I guess I, I was expecting it to be a little bit more off for you then, but. <laughs> right, yeah, no, no, they're okay. I, and actually I've gotten to the point where I just enjoy riding them as my free riding skis, just to mm -hmm. just to really get comfortable with them. Uh, so whenever I'm free skiing, as long as it's not too chopped up or too slushy in the afternoon, I'll just grab my racing skis and just try to get used to them. Um, gotcha. In, in hopes that at some point along the way, I will get sponsored a new pair of race skis so I don't have to race on these <laughs> things that I keep dinging up. <laughs> True. So how's uh, that side? Because coming into this a little bit like later, like you said, and everything's kind of like a compressed timeline for you getting into yeah. the sport and everything. So, but looking for sponsors and all that, how's that side of Because we'll get into that a little bit and kind of go down that path. And because that's a whole nother aspect of what you have to deal with versus you know, someone just casually getting into the sport. You're actually trying to get to the Olympics and that there's a whole nother aspect to that than, you know, 
you're casual. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's a little known fact that the average Olympian is going to leave the closing ceremony of the game somewhere in the range of 50, you know, 30 to $50,000 in debt because of the investment into equipment, mm -hmm. coaching, um, and probably more importantly, the investment of time. Most people give up their full-time jobs so that they can just kind of be yep. fully focused on, on training. Um, and so to help with that, I've been looking for sponsors. I've, I've had a fantastic summer in terms of uh, media coverage. Um, I've had a handful of podcasts. I've been, as I said, featured in Powder Magazine, Bad Country Magazine. I was on national TV in Jamaica a couple of times. Um, and, and a bunch of kind of other publications and outlets have, have picked up my story and, and featured it, which has been super duper helpful for the cause. Mm -hmm. Steel have been my first big sponsor. And I'm hoping that as I get closer and closer to qualification, or as more people hear my story, such as through podcasts like yours, then maybe other people would like to jump in and be a part of this other brands or other, other, other corporate entities to help me along the way. Um, I'm trying to make this thing work on a shoestring budget right now, which is why when you asked me about coaching so far, I said not enough and the, the, the cost side of it being the gifting mm -hmm. factor. Um, and I just hope that as I get closer and closer to those qualifying points, and hopefully I can have a good result in Snow King, uh, you know, close to 300 fist points or something like that, then people will start to take this more seriously and I hope they will find more, more cash to help me along the way. But just like anything else, it's, you kind of put your head down and you, you break it down into, into little chunks of what is going to make my story more appealing to bigger news outlets. And that's obviously getting closer to qualification. Um, and yeah, just been, just been cranking along with that and just trying to, trying to do the uncomfortable thing of putting as much of my life on social media as possible. It's not really my, my personality to do that. Um, but now in the world of being a sponsored athlete, it's, it's important to kind of keep people in the loop with what I'm doing and how my progress is coming. Gotcha. And how's that kind of, you said that you had your first one and then you're kind of, as you're, it, are you doing anything specifically to kind of find different uh, sponsors possibly or, are you kind of just kind of letting your brand kind of grow organically and then just waiting for people to kind of reach out to you? Yeah. So, or so a mixture of both. Yeah, de definitely a mixture of both. So yeah. I have a buddy of mine who uh, has helped me, you know, reach out to a bunch mm -hmm. of, of, of magazines and to help me reach out to uh, a bunch of ski brands. When I was down in Jamaica, I was, you know, kind of reaching out to all of the international brands that are in Jamaica or international brands that are born out of Jamaica to try and, see if there was any support there. Um, and yeah, I mean, now, now we're back into the ski season. As I said, the, yeah. the mountain opens tomorrow. The main focus is to keep, keep my head down, keep focused on training and, yeah. and getting towards qualification status. And I'm hoping that I've put enough kind of, you know, feelers out there in enough directions that people are keeping an eye on my story. And will at some, at some point the right things will click into the right place. I, I believe that to, to, to be what will happen here. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, like, like I said, when I first saw your story and then I went and checked you on Instagram, that's when I reached out to you. And I was like, so yeah, you're, it, the stories are definitely getting out there. Cause I think I saw your article in powder magazine first, uh, that kind of led me to, cause I was in, I was like, Oh, uh, a skier for that's representing Jamaica. That's awesome. And I, yeah. so I searched out more information. So, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that's, done that so i mean yeah, you're yeah. you're definitely getting out there so and i'm more than happy to share the story with my own viewers so 
Awesome. But other than that, I mean, this journey so far for you, starting where you came from and this whole 180, what's been your favorite part about the journey so far and everything that's kind of happened? Because this has been a lot to kind of unpack and there's been a lot of different things that I've tried to hit right now and just, yeah. but for you personally, what's been kind of like your favorite part of the process, favorite part of the journey so far? Um, spending the amount of time outdoors that I've been spending um, and probably being in the best shape of my entire life. That has been the, the, the kind of like the best, the, the, kind of like the, the best, the best thing, the thing that I've enjoyed the most about it. Yeah. So you, you said that you didn't really do a bunch outside before. Do you feel like you, you missed out on a bunch of that or do you feel like no, it's kind of just I, a different part of your, just, just another part of your journey? Cause exactly. It's just another yeah. chapter in life, you know, uh, leaving, leaving Europe and moving to Asia three days after my last exam at, at university. Um, spending a big chunk of time in you know, a completely alien part of the world, having the opportunity to, to DJ and perform in front of thousands of people in over 30 countries. I, I've definitely ticked a lot of fun, fun, fun boxes and fun buckets along the way. Yeah. So don't feel like I would you know, have a do-over and, and wish that maybe I did yeah. this Olympic thing at a younger age. I, I like the fact that it's come to me at this stage of my mm -hmm. life. And after all that, like, back, back to the question though, uh, uh, on the outdoor, you said your favorite thing is just being outside and just yeah. being in the best shape of your life. What's been your favorite part about the outside of it? Like what's been your favorite, uh, I guess, do you have like a, a day that stands out in your mind? Like that was just like the perfect outdoor day, the perfect ski day when it was just like, this is awesome. Like, yeah, I, I should have sent you the video ahead of time. It was on my Instagram a little while ago, like, mm -hmm. but it might be. It was, I think it was the 17th or something like that of April. And yeah. we went out and skied Mount Taylor, which is off the backside of the Teton Pass. It is a 3,000 vertical foot gain. Uh, you cut out a little bit. You still, I can still hear you. Okay, cool. Uh, you, you, just got into the back end of Mount Taylor. So just start there. I'll cut that out and now splice it together for you. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so best day was, uh, probably middle of April, uh, this year when we mm -hmm. skied Mount Taylor for the first time, actually the second time, but the conditions on this second run were absolutely epic. It was with my buddy, Andy, who's the guy from Mount Rainier. And mm -hmm. it was just so much fun. We ended up doing it twice and then, and then, and then skinning up the backside of glory just to kind of like top off the day. Um, gotcha. epic, epic day. And I have, I have video of that as well. What was your favorite part about the day? Was it just like super deep powder? Did you guys just get a bunch of snow or, uh, what was, what was it about that day that kind of stuck out for you, I guess? Yeah. Deep powder. And after doing the two laps of glory of, uh, Taylor, and then going up to glory, looking back at Taylor and seeing mine and my buddy's lines in this epic, really, really challenging mountain face through like this cliff band that had you show me that picture even a year before or six months prior, I, 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 there's, there's no way I would have thought that I would, that I would have been skiing those kind of lines. And just to kind of like look back at it and be very proud and like, okay, we just did that. That, that was really cool. You, were, were your lines the only ones on that like face so like just turn around just seeing just the two lines that's awesome exactly. yeah exactly 
Yeah, that's that just sounds like one of those days that just epic. I, I I'm looking to get in the backcountry here either. It'll probably be next season, but um, definitely something that I want to do. And I'm looking forward to having experiences like that and being able to just get out there and just, you know, be in the mountains because that's why I moved out here personally. I, I, I moved out to uh, to Denver to be closer to the mountains for climbing, skiing, and all of that. So yeah, that's definitely yeah. a huge aspect for me in my life, and it has been a little bit different. I, I did leave uh, – my job back in Cincinnati I took a job out here, just a summer position now, going into winter, finding something and all of that, you know, finding a way to make it work just to be out here in the mountains right now. Yep. So, and I, I think it's worth it. You know, it's better than, you know, being unhappy. <laughs> For sure. So, yeah, but the, the outdoors has always been my happy place personally. So definitely something to, I don't know, but for me, it's, it's personally been one of my favorite things. So, and skiing I've been doing since I was, I think five, my dad took me for the first time and I skied on ice for the first 20 years of my life. I didn't get out to the mountain. So I was about 20, but my dad, I I've been skiing since I was five on a little tiny bump in the hill called a, it's a bump in Midwest skiing. If you know anything about it, it's, fake snow and ice and just yeah. a mess so also a lot i grew up <laughs> races come from the, those those situations like michaela and Lindsay. yeah 200 vertical drop little bumps yep um i mean you're skiing on ice which is uh from what i've read from people that have actually got into racing it it the conditions become that sheet of ice that's yeah. just knowing how to control yourself on a ice sheet a lot yeah. of people that come from like the mountains don't know what ice feels like even they right, right. Don't, they're like oh what's ice <laughs> yeah so it's it's i don't know i appreciate uh the little bit that i had it, it was a half hour from home so i i can't be mad i i went out there once a week during high school wednesday i'd like pack up from school drive out there in my car my little tiny 99 uh honda civic so you know just fun you know and for me that's just getting out there and just getting on skis was always a good time and then i didn't get into climbing or the outdoor community really until college so a little bit different than your journey getting into it in your 30s so Yeah. yeah but i just think it's incredible how different everyone's journey in this outdoor community kind of is and you know, just seeing all the unique journeys into where everyone's at. And, you know, no, nobody came from the same background. Nobody came from the same, like, I'm going to do this. It's just kind of awesome to kind of hear each person's journey. So, and I've loved hearing yours so far. And I don't know if there's anything that you kind of want to add in. I think I've hit all the questions that I've kind of personally wanted to ask because I, just hearing your own journey when I first read about it, I'm like, I, I would love to have him on and actually just hear his, because who gets into skiing at 30s and wants to yeah. get into the Olympics? Yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah, I don't no, know I if think, there's anything that you kind of want to. I think oh, we everything. But yeah. I mean, I guess the one thing that, that I could ask for from your, from your listeners is yeah. if anyone um, – knows any brands or any companies that would be interested in being a part of this story um 
well, especially ski brands and yeah. ski sponsors. I would say, um, uh, I, I will say this, there's a community that I'm a part of. I don't know if you've heard of Basecamp Outdoors, but um, there's a lot of people in there that uh, a lot of it, a lot of it is uh, job based. So jobs in the outdoor community, but there's a lot of people who are contacts for outdoor brands, you know, right. lots of skiers in that. Um, and then there's also, I forget the ski group that I'm a part of, but it's a, uh, hold on one second. There's, there's two Facebook groups that I would highly suggest kind of uh, okay. reaching out to the, but I'll, I'll talk to you after, after we finish up. But uh, yeah, there's two groups on Facebook that I would suggest kind of reaching out to the moderators. See yep. if maybe you can post something there. And there's a there's a ski one that is for like you know, like diehard skiers. And then there's one that's kind of like an outdoor uh, industry. So there's yep. a lot of people just from the outdoor industry kind of that are a part of it. So yeah. But yeah. Other than that, um, yeah. Uh, if you want to end with anything, kind of leave any uh, advice or leave any end with anything in particular, then now's your chance. I will end just by saying thank you so much. And yeah. I hope that your listeners have appreciated hearing my story. Um, and here's to an epic 2021 season. Let's I hope agree. that we can safely navigate it. And I just hope that everyone can just do what the resorts ask us to do. Just keep the masks on and uh, hopefully we can ski all season long. That's the hope. I'm hoping nothing happens where we do have to close down at all. I got my A Basin in Loveland about an hour and a half in from here uh, yeah. on a on a good day because of the traffic. But yeah, so we'll to the snow gods out there. Hopefully we have a good season with deep snow, lots of good snow and just hopefully COVID doesn't torpedo it. So exactly. but other than that, so but thank you so much for coming on. I was super happy to hear your story. I love the journey that you've had. So thank you very thank much. You. Yeah. And to everyone else, thank you for tuning in. And I will see you all next week on the Outdoor Pulse. Thank you very much.